Okay, I'll try not to talk like I'm at a lecture. <laughs> okay. If you really want to know about policy, we should talk about 1965 Social Security <laughs> Act amendments. That's well, what people want to listen to. That's really what people want to listen to. My name is Lolita Abhyankar. I'm a family physician, and from Health Affairs, you're listening to Piecemeal, where we take a closer look at how consolidation in healthcare is affecting independent primary care practices and what that could mean for our healthcare system. Hello, hello. I wanted to introduce you all to Dr. Kyle Leggett, who is joining me today in conversation as we tackle some of the policy issues that inadvertently promote consolidation. Dr. Leggett, Kyle, is a family physician and assistant professor of family medicine at the University of Colorado, Denver. Sure. Thanks for having me. All right. So what are we starting out with? I thought it would be good for everybody to hear about payment structure issues because they are related to why people consolidate. So Maybe we can start with fee-for-service? There will never be a time when payment and reimbursement is not part of policy discussion and the healthcare workforce. Correct. So, and we can start and dig right into fee-for-service. Essentially, it's a payment model or reimbursement model for health insurance, where each doctor or healthcare provider is paid a fee for a particular service that they render, such as ordering a lab test or performing an annual physical exam, or maybe doing a procedure like a knee injection. Got it. So it's a fee for a service. Um, but I think that there's like a catch, right? This fee is not actually paid in real time these days. Yeah, that's right. So a patient might come to see you give you their insurance information, and maybe you get a copay, maybe you don't. They have their visit and then they leave. But even if they have a copay, likely there's going to be a bill later on that has to get processed and your payment is going to come later. Right. So after they leave, you try to make sure as a doctor that all your paperwork is in order, that you've successfully captured what you've done, that you've checked their ear for their ear pain, that you've examined their gait or their balance and have sent them a prescription for a walker followed up on their cardiology appointment and realized that their blood pressure was high and so made another follow-up appointment to recheck it. And then you almost forgot to remind them about their colonoscopy and so gave them a new referral because the last one you gave them expired. Yeah, you just described my last patient visit and all within about 15 minutes. Right. And you've got to make sure that all of this is documented properly and that the coding for the work you did is right, especially if you're an independent practice, because unlike the larger organizations, no one is checking your work to make sure that you're billing appropriately. That's very true. And after that, the note and the codes that represent your billing, which are called CPT codes, all of that gets sent back to the patient's insurance company, and they're supposed to reimburse you for the work that you do that visit. How do you know how much they're going to reimburse? That's a great question. When it comes to Medicare, it's actually pretty transparent. So Medicare has the cost of over 10,000 different services by physicians or other staff all listed out on a master schedule. And that's been predetermined by CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and it's publicly available. But when it comes to private insurance companies, well, that's where uh, it's a little less clear and that negotiation power of a consolidated market really comes into play. So say that I'm the only doctor or hospital or pharmacy in a geographic area. I know that all the patients in that area have to come see me. So I get to decide which insurance I take. And patients in that community are paying into all sorts of different insurances, maybe Medicare, Medicaid, different private insurance companies. And all of those insurers realize that in order for their health insurance to mean something, 
I have to take it. So I get to negotiate. And if I want to charge $400 for every throat swab, I can ask for that. Okay, so it's not as bad as that. I mean, sometimes as a physician, I might have done a throat swab and insurance companies might be like, why did you do that? The patient's diagnosis turned out to be something completely different. So even though the patient had a tickle in their throat, they don't end up paying for that throat swab. And in those moments, having that negotiation power to say to the insurance company, listen, you have to pay me. I'm the only major healthcare provider in the area. Pay me for the service and for the materials that I used. Thanks. Yes, I am currently dealing with that for a home sleep study, that exact same scenario. So if you're an independent doc, you definitely want that negotiating power because you end up losing a lot of money by not getting reimbursed. And that's kind of what happened to independent docs during the COVID-19 pandemic when they didn't have that negotiating power. We saw practices that had to shut down to prevent the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and doctors switching to telehealth. But insurance companies initially were really slow to reimburse for those visits in a way that was comparable to our traditional in-person visits, even though oftentimes that level of care was being provided at the same or sometimes even higher level than our routine in-person visits. But we didn't have a way to effectively code for it, bill for it, or collect those reimbursements. Right. I mean, in terms of higher level of care, I know that I was sometimes trying to treat mild heart failure that I would otherwise be sending to the hospital over telemedicine. Yeah, I actually found it almost more difficult and challenging to use telehealth. I was uh, trying to provide services without being able to physically examine the patient and having to really think more critically than I might if I had them here in the office. As an employed physician, I was able to rely on the, the company that I worked for to help with the negotiations with the insurance companies in order to get that reimbursement so that we could actually get effectively paid for our services during that time. Yeah. But I have friends who are independent docs in rural Colorado who were asking, hey, have you heard anything about what this insurance company is reimbursing for telehealth. We haven't gotten any payment this month, uh, and it's really impacting my ability to keep my nurses on staff. And this is, you know, in the midst of the pandemic when everyone is trying to social distance, trying to use proper PPE, and trying to completely redefine the clinical pathways for how we care for patients. Right. And effectively actually constraining care uh, during a time where it's needed the most. The problem with insurance negotiations is that the money has to come from somewhere. Sometimes one healthcare provider charges a private insurance company a really high cost, and that insurance company might actually refuse to pay a part of it, which then gets sent directly to the patient. And if the insurance company does agree to pay more, patients could see an increase in things like premiums. The money ultimately comes from the patients. Okay, so I'm also going to go on a really quick tangent. Most of our listeners, because they listen to health affairs, probably already know this difference. But I like to be reminded because I get confused. What's the difference between Medicare and private insurance? Can I give you a bullet version because we're on a tangent? Absolutely. Yes, you may. Okay. So the bulleted answer is that Medicare is run by governmental agencies. So the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, is a part of the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS. In general, Medicare costs less. It has an administrative overhead of three to six percent, give or take. And we know that oftentimes private insurance companies have overhead that's closer to 17, 20 plus percent. We also know that patient costs, so the cost to a patient decreases when they turn from age 64 to age 65. 
We know that it's a public payer financed through taxes set forth in the Social Security Act Amendments of 1965. There's really strict criteria for who qualifies, you know, patients over age 65, persons on dialysis, and a few other health conditions, and that that physician reimbursement fee schedule is publicly available data, and that there's a vetting process with public input anytime there's a change to the physician fee schedule. So Medicare is more transparent about prices and data, which makes it easier to predict cost. This is going to be important in future episodes where we talk about the potential for cost saving in limited horizontal consolidation among primary care physicians. All right, tangent over, back to fee-for-service. So many of us in primary care haven't been very big fans of fee-for-service. We might be doing a lot for a patient in a visit, but that fee-for-service system is skewed towards paying more for procedures like an orthopedic surgery or a cardiac catheterization. And it doesn't really capture the work that we do in chronic disease management, in primary care, behavioral health, or all the other things that we know make a big impact on patients' actual health outcomes. So this difference between orthopedic costs, cardiac costs, and primary care costs could be a perfect lead-in for facility fees. But maybe we should target value-based care first? I think that as a health system, we're moving towards value-based care. So that makes sense to me. All right, then, Kyle, what is value-based care? So value-based healthcare, it's a delivery model in which providers, including hospitals, physicians, are paid based on patient outcomes. So under value-based care agreements, providers are rewarded for helping patients improve their health, reduce the effects and the incidence of chronic disease, and live actual healthier, happier lives using evidence-based medicine. So value-based care differs from fee-for-service, in which a healthcare provider is paid based on the amount of services they deliver. The value in value-based healthcare is derived from measuring health outcomes against the cost of delivering services. So we like to define a high-value service as one that has a strong base of evidence that improves clinical outcomes, it reduces health disparities, and is cost-effective. Conversely, a low-value service is one that is unnecessary based on the existing evidence, is costly with consideration given to the site of service, and is not going to improve clinical outcomes or reduce health disparities. The reason to advocate for value-based care is that it at least reflects a little more directly what primary care physicians actually do. In terms of the types of value-based care programs, well, there are a lot of different programs that qualify. And in all of them, the payment is not reflective of one patient's care, but rather the overall improvement in health of your patient population, which feels like you're taking care of the health of the community rather than just getting a fee for treating a patient. However, these programs rely heavily on metrics, which if you have a higher risk patient population or patients with barriers to caring for themselves due to social determinants, it could affect payment. I spoke with Dr. Gary Price, the president of the Physicians Foundation, who explained the challenge further. You know, there are a number of regulations and metrics and systems that, when applied on the ground, don't make sense. So for the first one, I'll pick the, the darling of quality metrics, and that would be just looking at diabetic care and hemoglobin A1Cs. In the current system, if you have a patient who starts the year with a hemoglobin A1C of 10 and it's at four at the end of the year, that's high quality care, you, you get a good checkpoint. Um, if you have a patient who has an A1C of 10 
but doesn't have access regularly to a refrigerator, can't afford the insulin, uh, but you spend a lot of time with them. And despite the fact they're not getting their insulin most of the time, you work with them on diet and weight and you keep them at 10. That's poor quality care by that metric. If they're 10 at the end of the year, it doesn't account for all of the other factors that take place in their care. So that's just one little example of how the metrics don't get at what's really going on. And, and that would speak to my point that we, we introduced this notion of rewarding high quality care before we really understood what that is. I would argue we still don't, but we definitely don't understand how to measure it. The reality is this is how policies seem to be moving for now. But why would an independent doctor, for example, want to be part of this new model? As a dramatic example, what if they're worried they won't get paid because they do have a higher population of patients who need more frequent emergency room visits or who are sicker overall? I posed this question to Dr. Farzad Mostashari, who was the former National Coordinator for Health Information Technology under the Obama administration and is now also the CEO of Alidaid, a company that supports independent primary care practices in providing value-based care by aggregating them into accountable care organizations, or ACOs. These are loose physician alliances that are able to negotiate with insurance companies and can also work to improve health outcomes together. Here's what Dr. Mustashari had to say about how independent practices can manage the challenges of value-based care. I think you've got to do it as part of a group. There's the, the example that you, the hypothetical you put about like my one patient who needs to go to the emergency room, That's just that just points to the need to have a risk pool that's big enough where you don't you're not worried about statistical you know outliers, and so you got to be part of a bigger group. So you have five or ten thousand or twenty thousand lives that you're managing together, and then look at we don't tell people, you know, like here's the one person you gotta deal with. We say to them, in general, here's the new habits for the practice, and it's all the good stuff. It's all the stuff that everybody has been talking about. You should have same day scheduling, right? And the doc is like, well, but I can't because it's so disruptive to my schedule. I'm like, well, okay, under fee for service, you're exactly right. It doesn't make sense to allow someone who's sick to walk in and your front desk person will tell them to go to the emergency room. Under a value-based model, if if that $3,000 ER visit is averted and you get you get $600 or $900 of that, could you squeeze them in for 900 bucks? <laughs> They're like, well, yeah, I could squeeze them in for 900 bucks, right? So that's the difference. And that's why I think value-based care for primary care really just works. It's just like, it's the stuff that you'd want to do as a person trained in family medicine, for example. Kyle, I know you're still here. I'm here. But I want to take a moment to explain this because value-based care under certain circumstances also incentivizes consolidation of care. In some cases, in order to get the reimbursement money and to alleviate the risk that one or five or ten patients who are particularly high risk or who have social determinants that inhibit quote-unquote metrics of high-quality care, the best way to do it is to be a part of a bigger group. Some hospitals or physicians or systems or even insurance companies might take that to mean that everyone needs to be owned by a single entity. In the case of ACOs and what Alidate is banking its profitability on, this should be able to be done with just loose alliances of independent practices that are going in it together but are otherwise autonomous. All right, tangent over. 
Let's maybe go back to facility fees, which I had referred to earlier, and maybe talk a little bit about payment parity and site-neutral payments for now. From what I understand, facility fees made more sense at some point. Like, if you were a rural independent surgeon and needed to use the local hospital's operating room, you might pay a facility fee to use the OR like a facility fee at the gym. So, of course, under a fee-for-service model, it would make sense that a surgery costs more than a primary care visit because the cost of operation is just higher. But then somewhere, hospitals bought up primary care practices and were able to tack on that facility charge of up to $200 or even $400 a visit, even though the facilities of the hospital weren't actually used. When I spoke to Dr. Gary Price about this, here's what he had to say. I've seen that happen in my own community where cardiology practices were acquired on a Friday and when they reopened Monday morning in the same office with the same treadmill, same staff, costs had now increased 30 to 40% for the same service. Nothing had changed except who owned the practice and how it was billed. I thought that was such a great example. Facility fees are one of those things that if your insurance covers it, you don't even know it's there. As a patient, you might just have your copay or your premium to take care of or a deductible to meet. But then there are certain instances where your insurance doesn't cover a facility fee. And all of a sudden, that routine lab draw goes from a $20 copay to a $250, $300 facility fee tacked on to a simple lab draw. And let's talk about what that means for revenue a little bit. I mean, I've spoken with some independent primary care physicians who say that they're in solo practice their annual revenue might be around $500,000. They're also responsible for a few employees and general upkeep of the practice, in addition to all of the licensing and all of the other costs that we talked about in the last episode. Based on some survey data, the average primary care physician within an organization makes an average of $1.4 million for that organization. Can that disparity be attributed to just facility fees? So it's likely multifactorial, and there's probably things like difference in payer mix uh, between health system providers and independent primary care practices. But those facility fees also make a big difference. I don't think that all of it can be attributed to facility fees, but there's certainly studies out there that say some of that cost is coming from that difference in facility fee charges. So a recent study in health services research found that the primary care services rendered by physicians who are integrated into hospital systems brought in about 63,000 more per physician than services offered by physicians who weren't integrated into a health system. And that's over one year. Yeah. You could pay a whole employee salary on that if you're running your own practice. Exactly. It makes a big difference. So what's being done to level the playing field a bit? Well, in 2019, CMS actually finalized a new rule for Hospital Outpatient Perspective Payment System, or OPPS, which is the fancy name for facility fees. And this new rule would actually cap the payments to off-campus clinics, limiting the amount of those facility fees from a Medicare perspective and slowly decreasing the OPPS amounts offered to larger health systems. So it addresses it for Medicare, but not necessarily for private insurance companies. So these site-neutral payments are projected to save hundreds of billions of dollars on healthcare costs in the U.S. But interestingly, in June of 2021, the American Hospital Association asked the Supreme Court to hear their arguments on why the new OPPS rule shouldn't be enforced by the Department of Health and Human Services, and the Supreme Court refused. Because they're not down with OPP. 
Oh my god. <laughs> what? Because you're totally the first person to come up with that. Well, I mean, to be serious, the only thing I worry about with this cap on OPPS is that it might actually disincentivize hospitals to invest in the primary care practices that they currently operate. Yes, but even that might swing the pendulum back towards independent practice. We know that hospitals are less incentivized to own the practices if there are no facility fees. Yeah, it does seem to be a significant driver of vertical consolidation of primary care. A lot of different people whom I spoke with about this, facility fees was like the biggest example that they had about what incentivizes hospitals to buy up primary care practices. Kyle, thank you so much for helping me out on today's episode. It was such a blast to have you on today. You're really welcome, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I can't wait to be back. In this episode, we touched on some of the challenges that independent primary care physicians have faced during the pandemic. In the next episode, I want to dive a little deeper into those perspectives and bring in voices from on the ground. We'll be talking to independent doctors from communities across the country to learn more about how they navigated the pandemic. While the larger market trends and global viewpoint is important, it's also important to stay connected with how this impacts primary care practices on the ground. I'm very excited to share their experiences with you, and I hope you'll join. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, or comment wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, don't forget to share and spread the word about this and the other podcasts in our fellowship series. From Health Affairs, you're listening to Piecemeal. Thank you so much, and I hope to see you next time. Music melody and production by So Brown and Jack Mason. 